welcome back to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and this week my guest is Otavia Tay Lang. She is the curator of Dear Life Chat. She's a sound healer, a Reiki master, and mindfulness teacher. She performs vibrational sound bath sessions with crystal quartz and Tibetan singing bowls. Some of her achievements have included being the presenter for the CDC, everybody knows what that is now, on sound healing, being interviewed for the Atlanta Voyage magazine, and being a performer for the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, along with many other partnerships. She facilitates a mindfulness workshop for parents monthly. She has several mindfulness certifications, as well as a Bachelor of Science degree. She is very passionate about mindfulness and wellness, and overall teaching others how to use self-care to the benefit of their long-term relief. Everybody, please welcome Tay. Hey, thanks for having me on. She's coming all the way live from Atlanta, so please excuse any sound stuff. But Tay, tell us about your fearless female journey. Oh, wow. So it's been a long journey, that's for sure. And I'm sure there are many more steps in this journey to come. But I guess I will start this past seven to 10 year cycle that I've had. I'm originally from Mississippi. And so I moved to Atlanta about seven years ago. And at the time I was, I had a whole nother career, a whole nother life. It was just me and my two sons. We moved here and I just basically moved here because I wanted just a different environment and a, a fresh start for all the three of us. And how old were your sons at the time? At the time, they were, I guess, fifth grade and first grade. So I think that's like 10 and seven. They're teenagers now. But at the time, they were both in elementary school and we moved here. And I was working from home as a medical transcriptionist. And when I moved here, I already basically had a job because I was working from home. But a month after we moved here, lost my job. And it was the craziest thing ever because my employer already knew I was about to move state and they kind of already knew they were about to make this transitioning, um, transition into letting this department go. But of course they couldn't tell me. So I basically was almost set up for failure. So when I lost my job, um, it was it was very hard trying to get another job, especially because I was in a brand new city and I didn't know many people. And so I was just basically um, winging it. And after, I guess, a few months, I ended up becoming homeless. And me and the boys, we were evicted. I had an apartment at the time. And we were evicted. And all of my belongings were put out on the street. (gasps) And yes. And so pretty much everybody in my apartment complex went picking through my stuff. No way. And pretty much stole everything. I mean, the the big stuff was whatever, but I ended up losing all of my kids' baby pictures. Oh, no. Sentimental things were the hardest part of that. Why would they steal your baby pictures out of all the things to steal? I think people were just, you know, when I look back on it, of course, I was very upset at the time, but I think people were just grabbing stuff just to be grabbing it. Yeah. And so what I had, I had told my neighbor, I was like, I'm about to run down the street. And let me tell you the other part about this was like the hardest week of my life. My car stopped working like three days before that. I didn't even have my car. It was, it was in the shop still. 
And so I ended up having to get a rental car. But before that, my neighbor, I had her drop me off at the near Jew Hall. And I told her, I was like, can you just get my boys off the school bus for me and take them to your apartment so they don't see all the stuff in the middle of the parking lot? Mm. So she got my boys, but she texted me and she was like, they're going through your stuff. And I was like, they? Like, who's they? And she was like, everybody. So when I pulled up with the U-Haul, pretty much everything was almost gone. Like people, I could see my stuff like on people's balconies because they were just Ah. throwing stuff. And I went to this one apartment. I remember begging the lady, like, can you please like give me my kids uniform clothes? So they can have something to wear to school tomorrow. Like, and they were just the meanest people ever. Like I people were ignoring me. I called the police. The police basically told me that the stuff didn't belong to me anymore because it was left, it was left in the parking lot. So who put your stuff out? Like your landlord did? So no, they because it was like a formal eviction, they called the marshal. And the marshal puts everything out? So the marshal comes and they, I guess, hire people to drag everything out. That is so ridiculous. Like to me, that is just disgusting. If they knew you were going to go, like you could have said, hey, I'm going to go get a U-Haul. I'll be right back. Literally, I'll be able to take all my stuff or at least have your neighbor tell them, hey, she's coming right back or guard the stuff. I don't understand people. I just. Seriously, when you are down, why kick them when they're down? Like, right. I, where does humanity go? I just don't understand that. I would have been out there, like, with a broom beating people away from yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I, when I tell you, it was the hardest thing ever to witness in my life. Like, it it was awful. And, you know, it's still somewhat traumatizing, but that was six years ago now, I think. Yeah, about five or six years ago. But the journey gets better. So I'll keep going. <laughs> but after after all of this, we were homeless for about six months. And during that six months time, I eventually did get my car back. And we ended up, there were a few nights we did sleep in the car. What I, what I would do is I would drive back to my old apartment complex and we would sleep in the parking lot because it was a gated apartment complex. Yeah. And I kind of somewhat felt safe because I already kind of knew the neighborhood, even though I was still highly pissed off at my neighbors, <laughs> but I knew we would be safe in the car. And so eventually I started, you know, I, I did eventually get a part-time job. And then some nights we were able to sleep in a hotel, but uh, as you know, hotels are not cheap. So I finally sucked it up and went to a shelter. I mean, that was the part that I was dreading the most because then, even though we were already like sleeping in the car, but see, in the point, in the part where we were sleeping in the car, I really didn't sleep. I would just drive around Atlanta all night. We have this, we have this one interstate called I-285, which is just a big circle around the city. And I would just, I would just get on I-285 and just drive around it all night while my boy slept. And eventually that became way too exhausting because I wasn't sleeping and I was like living off of coffee. Yeah. And the gas still costs money. And the gas. And I was burning a lot of gas. Yeah. Eventually I did go to a shelter and we, we in total probably stayed in every shelter in this city because it's quite a few of them. And some were 
a little better than others. Some were like disgusting, but I had to do what I had to do. Were you afraid when you were in those shelters? Because I mean, how are you supposed to be? Aren't they just like a huge building where all the cots are in there? And that's how I imagine shelters to be. There are there are many different types of shelters. There there was one particular shelter where they had bunk beds and it was probably about maybe 30 in that one room. And um this one's this one was women and children only and we had this one bunk bed where it was me and my two boys. We were in the bottom of the bunk bed together and then there was somebody yeah, and then there was somebody above us. So it was it, it, I mean, we were very tight. And then, I mean, the, the hardest part was the restroom and having to, well, they usually would like open the restrooms. Most people will usually get up around six. But because this particular shelter was in the heart of downtown and, and it was not near my kid's school, I would get up at four and be the first one in the in the showers and washing up and then leave to get my kids to school on time. So your kids were still attending school throughout the time that they didn't have a place to like live? Yeah, I kept them in the same school. Actually, nobody at the school knew because the thing when, when you're like, because I work in the school system now, the way the school would know is if you're late or if you're tardy or if you're absent. But because they were always on time every day, I dropped them off on time, I picked them up on time. The school never caught on to what we were going through. And what did you tell your children? Like, did they have a clue? Obviously they did. But did you tell them, please don't tell your your friends at school or your teacher because this could take you away from me? No, but the first night my son realized we were homeless, he 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 called on. It was my oldest son. He called on. He was, I think, 10 at the time. And he called on and he woke up and I was like, let's because we would go to like Walgreens or the McDonald's to like go in the bathroom and brush our teeth and stuff in the morning. And one morning he just asked me, he was like, are we homeless? Because he, he woke up and we were still in the car. Because the way I would make them fall asleep, I would just drive around and I I would take them like to the parks in the afternoon and just tire them out. So by the time they got in the car, if I drove around for like 30 minutes, both of them would be asleep because they were they were young enough to just fall asleep easily at that time. But it wasn't until one morning he was just like, do we sleep in the car? And I was just like, yeah. And it was like the hardest conversation to have. But. Yeah, I was just open and honest with them. I'm not I can't remember if I actually told them not to say anything. I think they just kind of knew, but because I the only thing for them that wasn't normal is that we weren't in our apartment. I pretty much tried to keep the rest of their life normal. You know, I would take them to restaurants. I would take them to parks. We still um I still have a picture to this day of us at the Skyview Atlanta, which is the Ferris wheel downtown. And they look like just regular happy kids, but we were homeless at the time. And I keep that picture just to show them. But because I tried to keep everything moving as usual, just tried to keep a little bit of normalcy for them. I don't really think they it was much to gossip about or to tell their teachers. Yeah. Did you at any point think maybe I should just drive back to Mississippi? Did you have family in Mississippi that you could have possibly lived with or... 
Yeah, all of my all of my family is in Mississippi. Yes, that thought did run through my mind, but because of everything I left in Mississippi, as far as the the poverty mentality and just other things that I didn't want them to grow up with, I said I'm gonna have to stick it out here. And because I I in another part I didn't want to hear my family say I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a little, it was a little bit of pride in there too. So honestly, I didn't, I didn't even tell my family until after we got back stable. I was still like calling home, and they had no clue what I was dealing with, like because they they weren't coming to visit anyway. So yeah, I thought about it, but then something was just like, you're gonna make it. So just go through this storm, and it'll be fine. Like I have incredible faith in something outside of me that knew it was eventually going to get better. It was just a part of the journey. That's crazy. That's so incredible to know, especially right now when people are losing their jobs and they're freaking out and it's like, we are not suffering just yet. So yes, you're out of a job for two weeks. It's only been two weeks, you know, things can change. And yet, you know, here's this amazing woman who had to take her two children to a shelter. Now that is struggling. And so and having to tell your child that you are homeless, I, I can't even imagine that conversation, but still trying to keep their life normal. It takes a real fearless woman to say, I am going to make it through. So Moving forward, like I said, we eventually did get back on our feet, moved into a house. During the whole process of being in the shelter, I met a lot of great volunteers that that I'm actually still friends with today that, you know, helped furnish my first place and appliances and clothes. Like basically there are a lot of amazing people out there. And so I eventually did get back stable. And then I eventually transitioned to working into the school system after, you know, getting a full-time job and the boys are growing and moving to another area. Life was still, you know, starting to smooth out, get really great. Met a great guy at the time. We eventually moved in with each other, and then that was like a disaster, as some relationships <laughs> are. <laughs> yeah. But after becoming ex stable and after getting to this relationship, and after that relationship ended, just a, a wave of depression came over me. And it seemed like for so long, I was in like survival mode. Yeah. And I actually eventually started having like, heart palpitations and I had to wear a heart monitor, which I don't think I've ever told anybody that until now, but hey, that's part of the journey too. And when I went to the doctor, the doctor, he was like asking me basically what's going on in your life right now. I was like, well, nothing. Everything's actually pretty good right now. But after telling them all the stuff that had previously happened over the previous 12 to 24 months, the doctor basically was like, well, you must was in survival mode and now all of that stress is catching up to you. And so that was a wake up call because I was like, well, yeah. And so after thinking about everything that I had went through, then depression started setting in and just the anxiety of now I have to deal with everything that happened, like my emotional side of it, because mm -hmm. I, I just kept going because all I knew was 
You got to keep going. You got to make your kids feel like life is still normal. Like I didn't have time to grieve the process of being evicted, being homeless. I never had, you know, it's just, it's just like grief. Like when you lose, when somebody dies or transitions or whatever, you know, some people don't immediately grieve. It takes time. And basically that's what happened for me. So throughout all of that, I decided to do something different. So I started getting into meditation and that's when I started learning more about self-care and mindfulness. How did you first like find out about meditation? Like who was the first person to introduce you to meditation? So I had a friend at the time. She was very, very into yoga and she was into nude yoga. Nude? N-U-D-E? Yes, N-U-D-E. Oh <laughs> new <my> yoga. Gosh. <laughs> this is the second time I've heard of new yoga. It's not really? my thing. <laughs> like, that's so not something I want to do thing. <laughs> so it wasn't my thing either, but because I felt like, you know, you know how you hear people say that thing where you have to eventually try something new. And so I tried something new. So I went to her nude yoga retreat, which it was also here in Atlanta. She's actually from California, but she was living here at the time. Yeah. Leave it at Californians to bring nude yoga to Atlanta. (laughs) Right. Because I hadn't heard of it before then either. But apparently it's such a thing in California, right? (laughs) So I went to her yoga retreat and we were doing yoga and we started meditating. So that was like, the very first time I actually started meditating. Like I had tried it before, but I couldn't really get into it because I was like, how do people sit here quiet all this time? I don't understand. But, you know, when you're in a group and it wasn't like a large group, it was very small and intimate. It was like seven of us. And so that's how I started doing meditation. And at the very first retreat that I went to, because I went to a couple of hers, there was a, a young lady there playing singing roles. I had never heard of singing bowls and we're meditating and she's playing these lovely bowls. And I'm like, what is that? So I became super, super intrigued with the singing bowls. So after that, eventually I probably like within a month, I bought my first singing bowl, which was a Tibetan bowl. And I became just very interested in sound healing, sound therapy, and the benefits it has on you and the benefits of meditation and just the benefits of just taking care of your whole self, yeah. you know, not, not just your physical body, but your emotional health and your spiritual self. And so that's kind of how that meditation started for me. Yeah. Well, going back to you saying that you had heart palpitations, like <laughs> I talk a lot about like depression and anxiety and stress because I think a lot of us suffer from it. I personally have had heart palpitations in the past. And like you said, when you were talking to your doctor, you know, the doctor's asking you like, what's wrong? And even though at that moment when you're having those heart palpitations, maybe nothing is wrong on paper, but your body, your cellular body has kept trauma and anxiety stored and it will release it at any random time which is the reason why we have random panic attacks we get random triggers so the fact that like using meditation which for me has been very helpful to get rid of the heart palpitations it's a it's a huge thing to do but a lot of people are kind of especially people who are 
religious kind of pushed meditation away. I did see something really funny on your Facebook because I follow you on Facebook to all my friends who think that I'm doing like, I think you said something funny like satanic or voodoo stuff. Like, why do they think that? I mean, these bowls are so calming. And I've, I've had this happen to me where I went to this retreat and they had sound bowls and it was just the most calming thing So I don't understand why they think people who are religious don't want to try meditation, don't want to try, and they just think, oh, prayer is going to solve it. Well, prayer is complaining about the same problem over and over. Meditation, and it even says it in the Bible, like I was, be still. That's what they want you to do is be still and listen and just wait for the divine God, you know, spirit, whatever you want to call it to give you guidance, basically. Is that what you feel meditation can be best described as? Yeah. And to go back to <laughs> what I said on my Facebook. I yeah, love it, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, and and so my, my mother is a pastor. So I, I grew up in the church. And like you said, sometimes praying is just saying something, but you have to do more than that. And, you know, I think a lot of the times when the church doesn't necessarily agree with what you're doing or they call the the new agers, they don't agree with it. I think it's mostly just ignorance. You just don't know what it can do for your life. And so I, I try to balance a little bit of my upbringing because I tried to reel in some of my old church members and my mom to let them know that this is a great thing. Yeah. Um, like nothing against the church, nothing against people that go to church or religions. Like I, it's just not my personal practice anymore because I found something that works for me. But I think people just are against it because they don't necessarily know the benefits of it. And I think sometimes the church puts fear into people not to try anything new. And it's funny because you say it's new age, but really Tibetan bowls have been along, it's have old. been around longer. It is so old. <laughs> like even when like people to like, I have people like on my Facebook that have been following me for years and, and they do think like I'm a, a total voodoo priestess. <laughs> like, I don't know. They think I'm just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I'm first of all, a lover of all types of knowledge. Like one of my most favorite classes when I was in college was sociology because sociology is is the study of just what we do and how we interact with each other. And so as far as religion goes, I study all religions just because I'm interested in how people work in psychology, interested how our mind works. And a lot of the things that that I practice now, it's not new. It's new to, I, I don't, I don't even know why it's called new age. It's not new. It's not. Um, <laughs> I mean, they should just, uh, this, this is really what you call old school. This is, <laughs> that's what they should say. But no, I, 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 I think meditation, like, like you said, meditation is in the Bible, but I think sometimes people interpret things the way they want to interpret and, and that's and that's okay. You know, I, I can't make everybody understand what I do or how I live my life because it's personal to me. But I do love the opportunity to 
introduce people to meditation and how it can literally save your life. Yeah. And I wish people who have a religious background be more open to it because I have actually met the same type of resistance that you have with your family because my family is pretty hardcore Christian. And my brother-in-law just recently had surgery and I told my sister, I was like, well, I have this incredible meditation and it's a guided meditation about, you know, the healing of your body. And she Mm -hmm. immediately shut me down. She goes, he's not going to do that. We've already done our meditation. Well, what Mm -hmm. is it? I, we prayed and read the Bible. Well, okay, cool. You can add this to it. You know, I'm not telling you to stop praying. I'm not telling you to stop reading the Bible. I'm just saying that if you add meditation to your daily practice, you would have a lot more like healing both physically and mentally, but I got shut down real quick. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm used to it. Um, I think sometimes it takes something drastic to happen before people will open their eyes. Almost kind of like me. It took something drastic to happen before I even opened myself up to meditation. And I think people, they have an opportunity now to learn things, but sometimes it's like I was telling one of my one of my personal clients, I was like, you don't want to wait until it's too late to try to change your life. Or when you're forced to change it. When you have the opportunity, when things are pretty okay, and, you know, oh, let's just make a change now while things are kind of stable because you don't want to get to the point to where you're forced to make a change. And that's one of the things I try to instill in people that I come in contact when I do group sessions. Like, don't wait until you're in the doctor's office and they're telling you something's bringing on these heart palpitations. You, you need to change your life. You don't want to wait until it gets to that point. Like, while you're healthy and you're moving, like, oh, let's explore something new. And it can just be an extra bonus. Yeah. I mean, I truly believe that a lot of the things that we are going medically that are going on in our bodies, like cancer and heart disease and diabetes, and it's caused a lot of it by stress and anxiety and trauma that we're not dealing with. And we're just trying to you know, shove it away and think that mental health is not a priority. But when we mentally can help ourselves and heal ourselves, our physical body is a thousand times better than it was before. So I truly believe in the practice of mindfulness and meditation and sound bowls. And I mean, I am so happy that you're out there helping people learn this stuff, you know, because we need more people that are teaching mindfulness and teaching meditation because it does help our society as a whole. And I, I honestly love what I do. Like I was doing it before I even publicly ever did a sound bath for the general public. And I basically did it for me and, and my kids because they, they live here with me. So they got the benefits of the thinking bowls too. But it was a personal decision I made for myself. And Dear Life Chat, which is, you know, my, my baby, my aka my business now, it started off with me just having a conversation with myself, which is why it's called Dear Life Chat. It was just be me daily. I started basically a blog first and it was like my online, my online journal. And so people that follow me, they notice every post that I make on Dear Life Chat, it starts with a question first. And yeah, so it's Dear Life. Basically, my slogan is Dear Life, what can we chat about today? And it's how to be mindfully present in life. 
And so I start every post with a question and then I put the response immediately afterwards. But it, that was basically me at the time, uh, about three years ago, just like, what do you want to change? Like talking to myself, like, what do you want to change about your life? And I started this blog, which as I evolved, it, it evolved and evolved into a business which wasn't a part of the plan at the time. It was just basically me like venting online. But I, I started off just posting, you know, dear life, you know, what are you going to eat for dinner? And I was posting recipes or, or dear life, how do you meditate? And I was posting my personal tips to the general public on how to meditate or dear life, how do you change your life? And I would give tips to people that would follow me. And then eventually once I got into sound healing, most of my posts started evolving around more mindfulness-based, self-care-based, and sound healing-based. And that's basically how Dear Life Chat started. That's awesome. Honestly, it's because there's so many people out there that just want to have honest and authentic conversations rather than talking about what's on TV and what's who's winning the latest basketball game. Like some people have these conversations with themselves and they're too afraid and they're too they're afraid and shamed to have these vulnerable conversations because they're so afraid to be judged. And so I'm so thankful that you actually put yourself out there because it creates this arena of other people who are like, man, if she can talk like this vulnerable, then I can do it too. And that's what we need to do as females is like support each other in this journey of, hey, this is who I am. This is me. These are the thoughts that I have. I suffer from anxiety. I suffer from depression. I'm, you know, having these panic attacks. And if we talk about it more openly, which is what I want to do all the time, then more women will realize, hey, I'm not the only one suffering. I'm not the only one having these questions. I'm not the only one thinking what is life and what is its purpose. So I'm so thankful for Dear Life Chat, the blog. So as we wrap up this episode, what would you say to the women who are listening right now is your nugget of wisdom that you learned throughout your journey as being a fearless female? I would say... It's, it's never as bad as you think it is. Things, things always get better with time. You just have to learn how to adapt in the situation and, you know, figure life out as you go. You're never going to have the blueprint in front of you. You create your own blueprint. And the one consistent thing about life is there will always be change. So, Everybody has to learn how to be flexible. Everybody has to learn how to adapt. But it's never as bad as you think it is. It may be the worst of, for everything that you've experienced prior to, but it is never as bad as you think. It's, it, it could always get better. Like, And that's that's been my model my whole life. Like, I've been through some, some really effed up stuff, <laughs> but <laughs> like real talk. Like we'd, we'd have to do five more episodes, <laughs> but yeah, I just learned that it's, it's, it, it can always get better. You, you just have to stay persistent and want the change. Like nobody's going to give you handouts. Like I've worked with a lot of people and sometimes people just want you to give them the answer. Sometimes you got to create the answer for yourself. 
I love that, especially right now in the time that we're in with this coronavirus and everybody yeah. feels like, oh, my gosh, we're just going to all, you know, become zombies and eat each other. It's like, come on, <laughs> it's it's going to get better. We're in a dark place, but it's going to get better. And even in this place, it's not as dark as people believe it is. So I'm thankful so much for you taking out the time of your day to be on this podcast. I think this is exactly what we all need to hear right now. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser. You can find me on Facebook, The Fearless Female Movement. You can find me on Instagram, at Fearless Female Podcast. I just started a TikTok, Paola.Rosser. How can my listeners find you, Tay? I'm on all social media, mostly. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and it's all the same name, Dear Life Chat. That's C-H-A-T at the end. And my website is the same thing, dearlifechat.com, as well as my email, dearlifechat at gmail. So I'm very responsive, mostly on my Instagram, because I think that's where I have the most followers. But yeah, people can find me on there and we can continue the conversation there. Sounds good. Thank you again for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.